This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Deputy Editor and Podcast Host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Avashi Rowe to the podcast today. Avashi is a food writer and author of a new book, Biting Biting, which was inspired by her Gujarati family's love of snacking and features recipes that can be quickly put together from store cupboard and leftover ingredients to satisfy cravings and unexpected guests. Welcome Avashi, thanks so much for coming to join us today. Thanks for having me. Can you begin by telling us a bit about your journey in food and how you inspired to write the book? Yeah, so it's been kind of a long time coming, actually. So um, I did Bake Off, which put me completely outside my comfort zone. I'd never done anything like that before. But one of the things that Bake Off did do is just give me a bit more confidence in myself and my recipes. So it prompted me to start a blog. And I started to write about um, my travels, my allotment, um, you know, food that I was making using produce, um, predominantly vegetables. And then people kind of said to me, oh, you need to be writing about your Gujarati food because your food is so different. It's not like the stuff that we eat in restaurants. So I started to kind of write some of that down and it just proved really, really popular. Um, and then I got approached to do some recipe development by a few brands. So I did that and it was really fun. Um, so, yeah, it's just grown from there, really. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that about um, the the difference of Gujarati food, because your first point, we're going to go through your 10 things about um, Gujarati style snacking, is about the um, vegetarian being something that's like heavily favoured in Gujarati cuisine. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so Gujarat is the um, state on the western side of India, just above Bombay. And it is predominantly um, alcohol-free. 
dry, um, and it's predominantly vegetarian. Most of the the people are farmers, um, although we've got so much trade now kind of building up in some of the bigger towns. Um, but I grew up vegetarian, completely vegetarian. And um, that's really um, one of the things that I highlight in the book is that because we're using vegetables predominantly, the spicing doesn't need to be complex. And actually, um, I went with my daughter to Wembley yesterday to buy her first masala tin. Oh, nice. And um, it really is just, you know, turmeric, chili, coriander powder, cumin powder, um, and then salt um, for seasoning. And then you just build on that, really. Mm. So if you like garlic, put garlic in. If you like onions, put onions in. If you like cloves, cinnamon, all of those heavier spices, put them in. But the base... Um, recipes that I was taught by my mom really just use those very, very few spices at the beginning. Yeah. And you've got a really nice little decoder in the beginning of your book where you start off with those base spices and then you say, you turn over the page and you're like, if you get a bit more adventurous, you can add in all of this other stuff. And I think that's really important for people who might feel a little bit intimidated by, you know, looking at a spice rack. I I cook a lot of Indian food, so my spice rack is fully stocked. But even I like finding new interesting spices. But I think for someone starting out, just to have those basic spices is a great shout, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And what about, um, you said that recipes could also be vegan, but um, it, I guess, you know, yogurt, butter, ghee, taking those things out, maybe substituting them with, with other things could be done. Yeah, exactly. So I do a lot of teaching and um, I do get lots of vegans joining my classes. So um, yeah, the soy yogurts, coconut yogurts, or the vegan substitutes do work really, really well. So mm -hmm. anything in the book that um, is using something that you don't eat, swap it out, have a go, give me a shout if, yeah. it, if it doesn't work <laughs> and I can always give you some tips. Yeah. But as you said, like a lot of the methods are quite simple, so it should be something that you can easily substitute. I love that. And next you were going to tell us about the importance of ro rotely. Is that right? Rotley. Rotley. Yeah. And so is this like roti or it's it's a flatbread, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's exactly the same thing, okay. really. People have so many different ways of saying um, whole wheat flatbread, which okay. is basically uh, roti, chapatis, chapati. We say rotli mm -hmm. in Gujarati. And everybody has their own way of making it. Yeah. Um, so I learned how to make it standing on a little footstool at, you know, the stove with my cousin Daksha. And uh, she would let me, first of all, just um, cook the rotli. So rather than roll it, so that's the first thing that I learned. And you kind of like flip it on the side, you watch the little bubbles, flip it over, give it a bit of a dab to puff it up, flip it over one more time before you take it off and put loads of ghee on it. So that's the way I make it. But my friend Kavita has this process where she cooks it on the first side and then she takes it off the stove completely and puts it on the open flame. Then she flips it over and puts it on the open flame. Then she puts it back onto the thing. So it's a real it's complex. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, and my mum has a different way of making yeah. it. So I've kind of developed a rhythm of, of, of making it now, which I've passed on to my daughters. And I think it's probably one of the simpler ones that I've seen in my family. Yeah. <laughs> and you use a special rolling pin, don't you? I've seen that. Is it, it's kind of... I tell you what I think it's similar to. So, um, you know, when you go to Greece and you see the women that are rolling the phyllo pastry oh, yeah. really, really thinly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's similar to that. So yeah. it has, it's quite thin, but the thicker bit is in the middle, kind of almost like an oblong shape. Yeah. And that's used to push the dough down and flatten it. Mm. And then what we do is we kind of angle the sides up, down, up, down, up, down. And when you do that, you'll find that the, the disc of dough starts to spin naturally. 
Um, so it's really quite fascinating to watch people making yeah. rotli. Like when I first learned how to make it, I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do that. But then once you get the hang of using the rolling pin, you can then use a normal thick um, English rolling pin. I've used wine bottles before when we've been on holiday and I've forgotten to take my... Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it is a special rolling pin. And if you can seek one out online, I mean, like loads of people sell them now online, yeah. which is so great. Um, it really will help you hone your skills. Yeah. And what kind of flour would you use for that? So I use um, chapati flour or rotli flour. So um, the one that I use is called asliata. And that's very, very kind of fine. It um, It's whole wheat, but the, the grains have been ground quite finely. So um, I tend to use that. But if you don't have access to that, then you can do a combination of whole wheat flour, just normal whole wheat flour and plain flour, 50-50 mix. Um, and that should work perfectly so you fine. Need, you want a little bit of that grainy whole wheat in there for texture, don't you? Yeah, I like it that way. I, I find that if you use just plain white flour, it becomes a bit elasticy. Right. So I quite like the the whole wheat in there. It just makes it a little bit less stretchy. Yeah. And what sort of things do you, I mean, would, you, would that just be like accompaniment or, or can you use it in different ways? So Rotley is like an everyday thing. So my dad is the Indian equivalent of meat and two veg. Um, and he will have Rotley every single day. So since I started making Rotley at the age of, what, seven, eight years old, I have probably made tens of thousands of Rotley wow. in my life. Um, because it is, yeah, something that we have every day. So if um, uh, for, for, for dinner, my dad will have um, a vegetable curry of some kind, shak. Um, he'll have rice, he'll have dal, and he'll have rotli. Yeah. Um, I normally portion for around three rotli per person. Yeah. For my husband, um, who is about six foot two, built like a rugby player, about eight. <laughs> so um, you kind of get used to, yeah. you know, what, what, what people have. But yeah, I yeah. love it. <laughs> um, another iconic Indian ingredient um, ghee. You describe yourself as a ghee fanatic in the book. Yes, <laughs> Tell us about I'm your love of ghee. <laughs> obsessed with ghee. I love it so much. So I make my own ghee because it just fills the kitchen with this joyous aroma. Mm. It's like this buttery kind of caramelly goodness. Um, and it's really easy to make. I think that's the thing is like, you know, you can buy ghee so easily now. Um, and I'm really fussy about the ones that I buy. I tend to buy the ones that actually are made by British producers. Okay. Um, so there are some really nice grass-fed keys on, in the marketplace um, here. Um, and they're wonderful because they taste really fresh and they don't smell and you can, you know, really taste that flavour. But ever since I was little, I've been stealing ghee out of the little... Um, bowl that mum used to have it in because yeah. when you're making rotli what you do is you kind of you know, have your dough and then you roll your rotli yeah. and then you know one of my jobs once the rotli was cooked was to put the ghee onto it and mum always used to, to give my hand a little smack with the the vellum <laughs> because I always used to put on so much um, but I could literally eat ghee by the spoonfuls so I have it on rotli and Cook's Treat is um, freshly cooked rotli with loads of ghee on it. And then either brown sugar or jaggery, just mm. shavings rolled up. And that's what I used to get for being a good girl yeah. and, you know, making the rotli really, really nicely. But to be honest with you, I put ghee on plain rice. I put it on dal. I put it on 
um, yogurt sometimes. So yeah, I'm a bit of a key. Can you tell obsessed. us briefly how to make it? Because I've made it before, but I've seen it online, people describing it as like clarified butter, but it's not, is it? Because you have to cook it for a little while. You too. do have to cook it. Yeah. So what I do is I get a heavy bottom pan yeah. and I put in there unsalted butter, good quality unsalted butter. It's kind of like, you know, when people say to you to use wine in risotto, for example, mm. and they say that you should use good wine, good wine and not yeah. cheap wine. Same thing applies for ghee. Always buy the best butter that you can afford. Heavy bottom pan and then just leave it to just simmer and bubble away. Um, and I usually leave it for about 45 minutes yeah, to an lot. hour. It's quite long. Yeah. yeah, it's quite therapeutic because it's on such a slow heat. You don't have to keep going back to it. You just, if it's on a really low heat, it won't burn. Yeah. And what happens is all of the impurities, I suppose, fall to the bottom um, and the the butter, uh, the ghee kind of rises to the top. Yeah. And it will start foaming a little bit and you can, you can you know, whisk away that foam if you want to. Um, but if it's good quality butter, you don't normally get that foam. Yeah. And that's really all there is to it. And then what you do is just leave it to, to sit for a few minutes and then you drain it into a container. So I use like a steel tin, but you could use a kilner jar or something like mm. that. Um, and then just keep it somewhere cool. Um, the best bit, though, when you make ghee is the bit at the bottom. That is all the, those bits so that the are milk sunk to the that bottom. are left, yeah. Yeah, you get that, you put it on toast <laughs> and you just eat it. It's just so good. I love it. So, again, like leftovers from that. You can, yeah. you can eat all the bits, yeah. keep the ghee and eat that on toast. And that was my treat when mum yeah. used to make ghee at home. I used to get mm. to like lick the bowl, as it were, and just sit there and eat all of those bits from the bottom. Fantastic. I love that. Um your next point was going to be about rice, um, which, again, is a cornerstone to so much Indian cooking. Tell us about that. Yeah, so rice is really important. As I say, it's, you know, a key part of our meal with the rotli as well. Um, and generally the rice that I use or, or rather grew up with was white basmati rice. Um, nowadays, I'm kind of a bit more mindful about fibre and health and I've started to kind of use the brown rice yeah. as, as well, which is great to to have access to. But um, a couple of things on rice, I think. So mum would always soak rice um, before she went to work. So mum used to work um, full time. She'd leave the house at like five o'clock and you'd come into the kitchen and you'd see vegetables prepped for when she got home. You'd see the rice kind of soaking. And that soaking and washing is really important if you've got time to do it. So the first time I made rice for my father-in-law, he just looked at me and was just incredulous as, as why is she washing rice? So my father-in-law is, um, he's British, he's from up north, he's never seen anybody wash <laughs> rice before. But it's really important because it's so starchy. And if you want to have that kind of beautiful fluffiness of rice that you have um, in Indian restaurants, it's kind of, you know, really important to give it a few washes. And all you do is you just, you know, put it in the saucepan that you're going to use um, top it up with some water and just run your fingers through it very, very gently because you don't want to break up the kernels and then you pour it away and you do that, you know, two or three times. So when our little ones are learning how to cook rice, that's the first job that we yeah, give nice. them over the sink. Yeah. Um, and then if you have time, it's nice to kind of just leave it to soak for about 10, 15 minutes because that also really helps with the fluffiness. Mm. And I think that 
our way of cooking rice is just really simple because there's no, you know, one cup of rice and two cups of yeah, water. How do, you, how do you do it? Do you do, the, do you just do it with as much water as you need and then drain? Yeah, and, yeah. exactly that. So you put the rice in, um, you, you know, go through your washing ritual and then you top it up with water, put it on um, the, the, the cooker and bring it up to the boil. And then usually about seven, eight minutes, maximum yeah. of, of 10, depending on the rice. Um, and you'll see it all kind of bubbling and boiling. And then what you do is take it over to the sink, put on some cold water, um, and then pour that into a sieve and drain the water away. And you'll be left with super fluffy rice. Amazing. Good tip. I've never done that method before. I do like, I think like if you're washing rice or washing lentils, there's something quite like mindful about it as well. Yeah. Just the way your fingers are going through the rice and you're getting that sort of texture and then you're draining it off. And then when you see the clear water, you know, you're it's ready very to satisfying, go. It's really satisfying. It? <laughs> it sounds like so simple, but it is actually quite satisfying yeah. to do. I quite like freezing rice as well. So um, don't tell my dad this because the freezer is evil. I know I heard that your dad, <laughs> I was going to say that about the Rotley. He was, you, you said your dad would refuse to eat any of the freezer you know oh, we're yeah. always telling people to freeze stuff and he's like no 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 sorry <laughs> yeah no I think it's to do with Ayurveda because Ayurveda principles is kind of what I've grown up with yeah. I think it's something to do with it changing the properties and so the nutrition maybe is zapped or something yeah I don't know if there's any truth to that to be completely honest with you I freeze my rotli <laughs> and I freeze my rice and I just don't tell him that I've done it when he comes round but you can freeze both with 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 rotli freeze it in little bits because yeah. then you can make rotli soup which is in the book and that's fantastic for this kind of autumnally weather um but yeah rice is really good to freeze as well so i usually freeze it in um, portion sizes take it out um you know pop it in the microwave to to, to reheat it and it's done yeah and it's really good if you're doing something like a fried rice because then you've got it's already dried out and you know ready to go then isn't yeah, it yeah exactly so i've got um a recipe called vagara la pat in the book which is just um stir fried rice with spices and you can use rice straight from frozen put the spices on the top mix it all up stir fry it job done just instant food mm. i love it and next you're going to tell us about shark which is very particular to Gujarati cooking. Um, you mentioned it before. It, it's like curry. It's the same as curry. What's the what's the story? <laughs> so I'm not going to be professing to be an expert on the history of the yeah. word curry, but in Gujarat, um, people will say shak. Some people will say sak um, without the the sh, but mostly people in my family say shak. And basically. Saka means vegetable in Sanskrit. So I think that's where it's derived okay. from. And um, shak is just any kind of um, dish that you make with vegetables. So it was actually quite funny when we were putting the book together, we had the shak chapter and the dal chapter. And my publisher said, well, there's only really kind of one key recipe in the dal chapter. Can we put it in shak? And I was like, Ooh. No, we can't do that. All my auntie's going to go completely mad. Dal is not shak. No. So shak is very distinctly something that you would make with vegetables. Um, I suppose if you use tofu, um, that would also be okay as shak. Yeah. Um, but it's really the word that we use to to explain curry. Yeah. And you said you've got three different types of shak as well. Yeah. So the the base kind of recipes that I've I've given in the book are for dry shark. Yeah. So for example, if we were using um, potatoes, um, then it would be um, chunks of potatoes, and you wouldn't have that kind of sauce or gravy that you get. 
Um, but then you can also make rasol varo shak. So rasol means sauce, um, varo of shak. Um, and rasol you can make with kind of a tomato-y rasol. Um, or you can make a coconutty rustle. Now, coconutty rustle is so not Gujarat. The Hebrews don't use, you know, up in, yeah, in Gujarat, it's more area, South yeah. Indian. But I love coconut, yeah. so I kind of really like experimenting and just making coconutty rustle, coconut and tomato rustle. Um, then you've also got some shaks that we only have when we're fasting. So we fast, but um, we fast on specific days. So they could be festivals or they could be days that you have to fast for the health of your children or you might fast for your ancestors to remember them. And those shaks, we tend to only use very simple spicing. So green chili, salt and black pepper. Okay. And sometimes cumin. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you do have um, different kinds of shuck, but you can basically make shuck from any veg. So when I first got married to my husband about 25 years ago, he came home with Swede. Yeah. I didn't even know what Swede was. Like, I had, like, he bought it and I was like, what is this? And he's like, it's Swede. And I was like, okay, what does that taste like? And he's like, well, let's just make shuck from it then. I'm like, I'm not making shuck from this. I don't know what it tastes like. <laughs> How do I know what the spicing should be? So... He made me Swede and then he mashed it up like you do on Christmas dinner. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I get the flavor profile now. And then I made shuck from it because I can kind of understand, you know, what I need a little bit more of or, or less of. And actually Swede shuck works really well with just that pepper base. Yeah, and I think that's what my grandma used to make, like mashed Swede with loads of ground white pepper. Yeah. And I'm obsessed with ground white pepper because it reminds me of her, you know, but that, that little spice yeah. just brings it out. So it's have amazing. a go. So cumin yeah. as the base instead yeah. of the mustard seeds and then green chili and white pepper. Oh, what fantastic. I'm going to try that. <laughs> and what can you do with shark? Because you've, you've got like, it's infinitely adaptable according to your book. Shark is the best thing for biting, biting. <laughs> so if you've got leftover rotleys from lunchtime, say, mm. then you can make like a roll. Yeah. So, you know, um, get your rotley, put some chutneys if you've got any in the fridge handy. So the um, lasagna chutney is a really good one, the garlic and red chilli chutney, some yogurt, some leftover shark, roll it up, mm. then you've got kind of rolls for, for the next day. I also um, sometimes use it to make samosas because... I don't know, I don't, I don't like faffing around and making separate samosa filling if I've got shuck in the fridge. Yeah. So sometimes if I've got leftover potato shuck, I'll just throw in some frozen peas and I'll turn them into samosas. Um, shuck is also really, really nice on um, just like quinoa, um, just tossed together or with, with, with rice, yeah. just tossed together. You can make like little patties from it. So if you kind of take the shuck, squish it together into a golf ball size, yeah. roll that in breadcrumbs, deep fry that. So, so many different and, uh, things. It's funny because I, I read the in the chapter you said your husband, the first time you went to your mum's was saying, why has she got all these bowls of shark in the in the fridge there's millions of them and they're all really small why don't you just eat them and you're like she's going to use them to do loads of different yeah. things and that was that was actually one of the reasons for how the book came about actually was because i came into the kitchen one day and it was like watching a tennis match except my mum is four foot nothing yeah and my husband is six foot two so instead of going side to side to side watching tennis you're kind of going up down up down and he was I have an under-the-counter fridge, yeah. so it's quite small. And my husband must have gone in there one day to get something out, and there's all these little bowls. And he was like, why have you all these little bowls everywhere? You know, you're never going to eat just two tablespoons of this shack and two tablespoons of that one. And she was looking at him with, like, that hard Paddington stare of, 
this man is crazy. Why would he even think to throw away this food? Because as you say, tomorrow I can make something else with that. Um, Or, you know, maybe I can add it to something else to make a bigger dish. Yeah. so it was a really quite a funny conversation to to watch. And I think that if she had been taller, she totally would have smacked him around the head. Um, at, you know, the audacity to suggest <laughs> that she throws something away. Do you think it's a symptomatic of like the culture of, you know, people can turn? Because I think you said, uh, I think I've got this right in your book that you've trained your mum to tell you when she's coming round because she's just turned up with her and your their aunties or your aunties and um, and you'd be like, oh my God, I've got nothing to give them. Sort of like, so is it that thing of like at any given moment you can have visitors and you want something to be able to feed them? I think, I think it's that, but I think it's two things. So I think the first thing is that, you know, when I first came to this country in 1976, I was five years old. Yeah. We, we didn't, you know, my dad had 50 quid in his pocket um, turning up at the airport. So I think there's this inherent um, way of being frugal yeah. that's just ingrained to, into me. Um, and, and part of being frugal is not wasting anything mm. because, you know, at that time in particular, ingredients were hard to come by. They would have had to have travelled to the hub spots of Wembley or Southall to go and source those ingredients. So if you're making shark and um, with those hard to come by ingredients, you really don't want to be throwing anything yeah. away. So I think that's part of the mindset of many Gujaratis, um, particularly in this country, but also back in India. Um, and then, yeah, because back in Tanzania or, or in India, you're kind of living on each other's doorsteps and people just do pop in. It, it's part of our nature. Yeah. And um, the the house where my mum and dad settled is in Perivale, which is very near Wembley, which is the main shopping area. So my house on a weekend when I lived at home, it's like Piccadilly Circus. There would always be people coming in and out, in and out. So you can't have somebody come to your house and not feed them. That's absolutely not heard of so having all these little bits and pieces in in the house and having a store cupboard that where you can you know quickly make something and uh, I I hate to say it dad but having a freezer full of bits and pieces that you can also (laughs) hastily rustle up something with I think is just part of the way that we've grown up yeah and it's such a great message for right now isn't it for what we need to be doing the next point was going to you're going to talk a bit about wedding food because I think you had quite an amazing wedding yourself with quite a lot of guests tell us about the sort of things that that you could expect to eat at a wedding yeah so Gujarati weddings if you ever get a chance to go to a Gujarati wedding go it's like the best um wedding food I think um, so my wedding was a little bit unusual. I was probably one of the first people in our family to get married to a Britishman, Englishman. Um, and so we decided that we were going to have a very small civil service. We had about 30 people. And then came the Indian wedding and all of the different <laughs> ceremonies. Um so I'm the eldest in my family, which means that for my parents, they have a huge long list of people that they need to invite because they've been to their children's weddings. So when my mum first put the list together, I think we probably had about one and a half thousand people. And we're counting every single head, right? Kids as 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 well. Oh my God. <laughs> and I looked down the list and I'm like, Mum, 
I don't know half these people. Yes, but it is okay. We have to invite them. And I'm like, sorry, I can't do my mum without doing the accent. So I hope that's not offensive to anybody. I just can't do it. Um, so I looked down the list and I was like, okay, I'm going to have to streamline this because in my family, there are loads of cousins and uncles and aunties and masas and masis and, and whereas my husband's side of the family, I mean, literally you could count on two hands, yeah. his entire family. So... We streamlined it and streamlined it, and um, I think we got to about 500, which is really small for an Indian wedding. Um, and we, you know, normally with Indian weddings, you hire a hall, and the wedding banquet is, you know, it's not seated. Yeah. Um, it, it's like a buffet. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, that was my wedding. And because I thought, well, okay, well, I'm marrying an Englishman. I'm allowed to do everything differently. This is amazing. I don't have to have normal Indian wedding food. So I did have some dishes that you would expect to find in a Gujarati wedding banquet. But I also kind of snuck in um, some of my favorites. So, for example, I didn't have rotli um, or buri. I had padura, which are kind of like fluffy flat flatbreads, mm. which are fried and they're just really good um yeah i had shrikand which is in the book that's one of my favorite desserts and you see that more and more now actually in wedding banquets but yeah wedding banquet will normally be kind of one or two shucks um and then some sweet things about three or four sweet things bendas barafis uh, sev all of these are in the book mm. um dal you'd always have dal rice um sometimes you have salad um and the lineup is usually um, family members be on the girl side because you are feeding the boy side who oh, okay. have, you know, travelled to to, yeah. to be part of this wedding. So um, when we were younger, we always used to get roped into being part of that kind of service line. And the worst job that you can have is to be on the doll because you're wearing this beautiful mm, sari and outfit and it just splashes all over the place. There, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the men folks answer to this is, well, you can just wear an apron. I'm like, dude, I've got this beautiful <laughs> sari on. I am not wearing an apron. I love it. Because also part of the lineup, what they do is they choose the age groups very, very carefully. So if you are of marriageable age, then they put you as part of the lineup oh so that God. you can be observed by all of those people at the <laughs> wedding. There's all these like little strange customs like and strategic. things. strategic. Oh, I love so it. so strategic. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and you were also mentioning um, in that, that when once, once you've been married, um, you then have to go and visit everyone who you've invited to your wedding for dinner. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Um, so these are called jamwanus, yeah. which loosely translates, I suppose, as a dinner party. And yeah, it's kind of customary to do the rounds um, to if you're invited. So not yeah. everyone, you know, goes to to, to that effort of, of inviting you for dinner. But it's a way of... Because the wedding is so big, you wouldn't really have had the chance to meet the bride and groom at the mm. wedding. So it's a way of kind of saying, hey, come to my house, eat, let's talk and get to know you a bit better. That's nice. Um, which is really lovely. Yeah. And we actually wondered whether people would do this because we, you know, an unusual couple mm. being um, um, half and half. And so my husband was like, when I first told him we got the invite, he was like, oh, yeah, that sounds nice. Let's go. And then I kind of, over the course of the week, said, oh, yeah, we've been invited to this one as well. And then this one as well. And he's like, hold on a minute. Are we going to have to visit every single person that came to our wedding? And I was like, I can't say no. It is going to take quite a long time, but it would be really rude for us to say no. 
So we literally spent about, I think, six months on and off oh um, doing the rounds. And then a few years later, when we went to visit family back in India, we did the rounds there as well. Um, we haven't been back to Africa yeah. since I came over here. So we still have to do the rounds in Africa, oh, even yeah. after 25 years of marriage. Um, but yeah, he was pretty terrified going around them all. But he got to meet everyone and he got to share some of their cooking as well, which yeah. is fantastic. And the first one was actually one of my favourite uncles who's passed away now. And we got to his house and uh, they had laid out the table with all of these beautiful snacks and, and my husband loves to eat. And so he kind of like started eating and I'm trying to nudge him going, slow down, slow down. And he's like, why should I slow down? It's really nice. And I'm like, this isn't dinner. This is just the snacks. <laughs> and his face, it was just so funny. And then we sat down to dinner and he must have rolled out of there because, really? I mean, they're so generous. And they want to feed food. him as well. Yeah. yeah. And they all they all kind of, at the time, they there was a competition between all of them. And it was so, well, at my house, he had six Rotleys. And it's like, well, I actually gave him three shack and he had eight Rotleys at my house. So it was like this competition over the course of the first year that we were married as to which aunt actually fed my husband yeah. more. What a lovely way to make him feel welcome <laughs> and to get him really fat as well. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about that, um, I love a fry up and you're going to tell us about your Gujarati fry up for the next point. Tell us about that. <laughs> so Gujarati fry ups are always Sunday mornings. Um, so when I was little, I'd come down and, and I suppose it's another way of kind of using up what's in the fridge over the course of the week, but particularly rotli, because dad will only eat freshly made rotli. So any rotli that's left over every day goes into a special um, container. And then on Sundays, mum would fry those. Oh, to give them another life. Yeah. yeah. So again, different texture, yeah. different, you know, foods that you eat them with. So she'd fry those and then sprinkle sea salt on top of them. Mm -hmm. And they're really good with deep fried um, green chilies. And then we'd have sambaro, which is, um, it's, it, it's kind of, um, batoned or grated um, cabbage and carrots mm. stir-fried with mustard seeds. Um, and that just that in itself is amazing. Yeah. Um, but I quite like to have yogurt with the uh, lasani chutney stirred together and then I dip my crispy rotli into that as well. Um, a layer on top of that is maybe dhokra. So if we were really lucky on a Sunday and mum had some leftover yogurt over the course of the week, then she would make dhokra as well. So that's kind of like a typical Sunday fry up. So what is dhokra? Dhokra is a um, savoury sponge cake, I suppose. Um, we you can make it either with just chickpea flour, gram flour. I make it with semolina. Oh, yeah. This, and then steamed. And to steam make them, it. Yeah. yeah. So mum has a real faffy way of making it. When I first learned how to make it, I just got really put off because the process was so ridiculous. Mm. But I do it now in just one bowl, a wok and an eight inch cake tin. So yeah. it's super quick. And then chop that up and mm. have it on top. I love that. And lastly, to finish, we're going to look at some sweet things. Um, we've got mistan and mithai. Yeah, so some people say mishtan, some people say mitai. Um, it's basically the same thing, and it's kind of the umbrella term for sweet mm. um, sweet treats, I suppose. Um, and we never had these growing up because, um, you know, they they are they can be time-consuming to make. I've kind of tried to simplify the recipes in the book um, so I don't think they are that difficult to make, which is probably why I have them every week. But um, but yeah, it it it's something that that you you have as a treat. You often have them at temples when you go to pray, and then the priest will give you some um, you know offerings uh, to to take home. Um, my favourite are benda. 
um, which are kind of like little dumplings made with milk flour, um, milk flour, milk powder. Um, and when um, when you get married, it's it's kind of customary to fast uh, for the safe arrival of your husband. And I actually observed this, even though my husband's an Englishman, I actually did observe it because I thought, well, you know, superstition and all of that. Mm. And um, he's supposed to bring you sweet treats. And he knows me really well that my favorite, favorite, favorite ever is mawana benda. And these are like kind of super slowly cooked um, benda made with um, mawa, which is like this creamy substance. And they're almost like caramelly in flavor. So they're, they're brown. Uh, oh my God, I'm getting really hungry now. I want benda. Um, and he bought me um, a basket full of just benda. And everyone in my family was was like, well, did nobody tell him he's supposed to bring different kinds of mitan? And I'm like, no, he's bought me Benda because I actually love Benda. He knows me <laughs> so well. So the priest was not happy that he didn't have this variety yeah. at the wedding. But yeah, Benda are great. If you can ever, you know, seek those out, then they're great. Um, I suppose mishan, uh, Mishtan or Mitai can also incorporate Shrikand, which is the sweetened yogurt. yogurt yeah. um, and normally that's made by putting down kind of um, loads of tea towels, loads of wads of newspaper, putting the yogurt on top and then leaving the water to completely oh, wow. steep so out. So almost like labna, how you make mm, labna, that kind exactly of grain that. in the yogurt. Yeah. Wow. So whereas with labna, what they do is they kind of then it's quite savoury, isn't it? Yeah, they it? take it in a savoury direction. Yeah, yeah. Whereas we take it in a sweet direction and we would sweeten that um with icing sugar or honey, um, saffron, maybe some cardamom. I can't wait for it to seep through. So I have like <laughs> a really fast track way of making it. Um, um, but yeah, that that comes under mitai. And then you've got um, sev, which is in the book. It's one of my favorite dishes. And it's kind of sweet vermicelli. So the really, really super thin pasta that that, that you get um, from Italy, that that's what I use day to day. Mm. And you just kind of toast it in ghee, obviously ghee. Um, to, like, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um, to, uh, yeah, just it brings out the nuttiness and you kind of brown it. Um, and then you add some water, cardamom, sugar. Um, and that's really nice, kind of freshly made, warm with some vanilla ice cream. Yeah. Or you can put some double cream in there and have it like a more like a soup. God, those are gorgeous ideas to finish with. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to chat just today, so Vashi. Welcome. It's been so lovely listening to your stories. And I'm feeling very inspired and, hu and very hungry now. <laughs> so your book, Biting, Biting, Snacking Gujarati Style, is out now to buy. That's right, isn't it? It was yeah. released right at the beginning of September. So exciting. Um and if people want to keep in touch with you, where's the best place to do that with what you're up to? Oh, I'd say Instagram. I'm yeah. much better on Instagram than I am on Twitter, though. I'm on Twitter quite a lot as well. But yeah, follow me on Instagram. It's just at Avashi Row. And um, I'll be posting loads of, of things that I'm making and um, doing some tasting events actually oh, soon brilliant. as well. So post about those as well. Amazing. Well, really good luck with the book. And thanks again for coming to chat to us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>